Hey, good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. I'm Jason. If we haven't met, I'm so thrilled that you are here. And where we've been this summer so far, if you've missed it, or maybe as a bit of a reminder, is we talk for a bit about spiritual friendship, about finding some deep frequency connection with a few other people, and how it is that we live at that deep frequency with one another, and like what gets in the way of that, and how we can move toward that. Uh, we've talked about the city. Uh, South Bend and what it means for a church to be called to a city, for a church to love a city, to be located in place and time. Uh, We've spent a couple weeks just hanging out with Jesus in a moment in the Gospels where he and his friends experienced some scarcity because there's not enough food. And we tried to find ourselves in that story with our brains and our bodies and at the communion table. Uh, Around the corner after Labor Day, we're going to jump into uh, a, a deep conversation about the kingdom of God. Uh, which is the way that Jesus describes the world that's actually breaking in right now because of what Jesus has done. It's a world breaking in that has its own ways of living and breathing and moving and creating. And it's an invitation that's here for all of us. So after Labor Day, we're going to hear that invitation and try to understand that description and try to move into those patterns and invite anyone who wants to surrender to that invitation to be baptized. All that's coming up. I'm very excited about that. But we have a little window here, a little gap in the calendar. Uh, so we're going to have some fun for the next few weeks. Uh, last weekend I was at Lollapalooza, 100,000 of my closest friends in Grant Park in Chicago, uh, for some music while I tried to avoid a contact high. <laughs> I was trying to avoid it, my friends maybe not so much. But anyway, I was in Lollapalooza uh, just enjoying the music on stage and having a very good time. And I've got this little troop, this little crew of friends, and we, we've been going to Lollapalooza like every year. We have our patterns down. So I'm there with that troop of friends, but there's other friends that I ran into at Lollapalooza too. And one of those friends that I ran into at Lollapalooza, I tell him a story about something that happened just before Lollapalooza, and the story is this. Uh, so I've had this writing project that's just been sitting there like a dead animal on my desk for like two years. And it's a, it's a book that I feel compelled to write and I want to work it out. Uh, but frankly, it's just been the lowest thing on the priority list for a very long time. And one of my friends who's part of my Lollapalooza crew was trying to introduce a little bit of motivation or accountability to the process. And I appreciated that. So we conspired on this and we decided there should be some actual consequence for me at Lollapalooza if I don't get a couple thousand words written before I show up for the festival. And so the consequence that we decide on is that if I don't get a couple thousand words written before the festival, one whole day at Lala, like 12 hours in the park, my friend gets to pick out everything I'm going to wear for the day at Lollapalooza. And he's my friend, but he's not the type to go easy on that kind of bet, right? So that's the bet going into Lollapalooza. And then I run into one of these other friends who's not part of my usual Lollapalooza crew, and I'm telling him the story about the bet. And he says to me very sincerely, he says, well, that's why you're wearing that. But guys, I got the writing done. (laughs) I was wearing what I had chosen that day. And the reason I tell you that story is because it's a story about someone who didn't know that I was aiming for what he was seeing. And it dawns on me that if you've been a part of this church for just the last few months, um, there might be aspects of what this community is or aspires to that we're actually aiming for, but you might not know it. Like that we're actually intending to be a part of our experience as a community. And maybe you've been here and you've thought, oh, I wonder if they intended that. And the answer might be yes, but how would you know that if I don't explain that to you? Uh, early, early, early in the, in the history of this church, before we had the mantras, maybe you've heard the mantras, practices, not performances, and fields, not factories, and everyone, an icon, and sushi, not fish stew. If you don't understand those, they're on the website, check them out. Before we even got to the mantras, there was something even more ancient 
in our two-year history as a church that goes back to the early meetings that we had in homes when we would share a meal and pray together and talk about what we thought South Bend City Church was called to be. And it's this. Has anybody ever wondered where our logo comes from? It decorates, yeah? It decorates your coffee cups. You see it when you walk in. It's on the website. Um, I want to talk about the logo for a few weeks here uh, because it's not just a logo. It's not just kind of a thing that we slapped on the website to have a kind of visual brand. Uh, I worked really hard on this to try to embed within this symbol some of the um, deepest impulses that I think South Bend City Church is supposed to live out. This is my best discernment on what we are supposed to be as a community. Uh, We embedded it here in the logo, and I want to talk about that for a little bit. Side note, one of my litmus tests for a good logo was, is it tattooable? I don't know anybody with a South Bend City Church tattoo, but I think that would be a pretty good-looking tattoo, just throwing that out there. I suppose the fact that I don't have one means I'm a bit of a hypocrite for inviting anybody else, but whatever. So I want to talk about the logo for a bit because within this symbol, there's actually a few symbols sort of hidden. Um, Not meant to be like sneaky or anything like that, but we just sort of meant this to be a reminder for our community that calls out of us the, the original vision that we had as a church. Now, the blue line that cuts through the middle of the triangle there, that's kind of the easy part. And we've actually been talking about that this summer already, but you might not have known it. If you look at a map of downtown South Bend, the St. Joe River, the blue on the map, cuts through downtown at almost exactly that angle. So if you overlay that logo on the city map, you'll be reminded that South Bend City Church is South Bend City Church. Like we just said, we're, we're local. We're called to a place and a time. It's our best effort at imitating Jesus in incarnation because he showed up in a certain place in a certain time in flesh and blood. So that's the blue line. It reminds us that we're here for our city, right? But there's more there. There's a triangle. Let's talk about the triangle for a bit. The triangle uh, represents, um, first of all, something like rooted faith. Has anybody ever seen this symbol before? Yeah, right? Uh, Many of you have seen this. This is uh, traditionally called a triquetra. Uh, It's a a Trinitarian symbol. This goes back to uh, an ancient Celtic image that then got sort of pulled into Christian faith and reappropriated or used to help us remember what's sort of distinctive about Christian faith. And if you look at that triangle, you see it's got three points and a unifying circle, which is a sort of symbolic way of reminding us of this peculiar idea in Christian faith that God is three in one. And uh, I start there as we talk about who we are as a community and what that logo means and what we are aiming for as a church. Uh, Because first and foremost, uh, we are aiming for a community that is unapologetically faithful to a rooted faith, that, um, that, that digs its roots deep into uh, what we understand is most true about what we call Christianity or what Jesus is doing. Uh, The scriptures witness to this faith. Uh, Jesus is at the center of this faith. And another way of sort of articulating this faith is in some of the ancient creeds that the church rallied around to describe the story that God is inviting us into. So to to, to work this out a little bit, I just want to work through the movements of one of those creeds that's uh, sort of symbolized by the triquetra. Now, before I do this, uh, if you've been here uh, hopefully any other week, you might have heard me say from the stage, that you don't have to believe uh, what this community believes to be a part of this community. You can, like if the, God, the word God doesn't work for you, prayer doesn't work for you, if Christian faith doesn't work for you, if the Bible doesn't work for you, I'm telling you there is still a place for you here. Uh, on our website, we say we're a community for believers and doubters and everyone who's a little bit of both. So as I move into articulating the contours of historic Christian belief, I just want to say again, if none of this works for you, you are still so very welcome here, Okay. 
But now, that being said, let me uh, move through some of these ideas. The creed begins like this. Uh, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And right out of the gate, I want to propose that this is far more important and revolutionary than it sounds if you've been around Christian language for a little while. Uh, this is suggesting, first of all, like we believe in God is to say we believe there is more than what you see right in front of your eyes, right? There's more than what we can simply get our hands on. That um, not only do we believe in God who is sort of above and beyond and that transcends all of this, but that that same uh, belief in God like undergirds all of this, sustains all of this, gives life and being to all of this. That's a really big claim, right? And it might even need to have an effect on how we interact with everything we see. Because it's not just that we believe in God, but we believe in God creator, meaning that the things that we see are not here accidentally or unintentionally, that they're not just there, but in fact they are desired to be here, that God wants the world that we see around us to be here. Maybe not in its current form with all of its breaking, but that God wants the world that we see, that God wants you and me to be here. That's a big, radical, important claim. Uh, a guy named Luke Timothy Johnson uh, writes a book that I would highly recommend. Uh, the book is called The Creed, What Christians Believe and Why It Matters. And in that book, he's reflecting on the significance of this statement. And he says this, The believer affirms that there is mystery at the heart of the world, a mystery that does not yield to direct examination, that refuses to be measured or manipulated, yet suggests its presence in every single thing that we can feel and taste and see and hear and smell in the world. The believer dwells in a world that is magical as well as mythic. The world is full even though it looks empty. The conviction that the world is not all there is does not diminish the worth of the world, just the opposite. It teaches us to see the world as the most marvelous gift, a gift that once given can be studied, contemplated, and celebrated because it is freely given and not simply there. And at a moment in time where I think we are tempted more than ever toward a sort of reducing the world to just what you can see and measure, it's a big, bold claim to say there is more than what we can see and measure. At a time when we're tempted to just use the world and use each other, it's a big, bold claim to say that the world and the others that we see are here because God wants them to be here. They're gifts that we're here to steward. This is big, important stuff, right? Now the creed goes on from there and then at the center of the creed, uh, we find what this community would say is the center of our faith when the creed speaks about Jesus, where we read this. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Now we could work uh, for the rest of our life as a church on just that, right? But let me just say today that the, the next move that the creed makes is to take this big transcendent promise of God and then locate it in a body that suffers and dies. Which if that doesn't blow a few fuses in your brain, you're not listening right now, right? It takes this big transcendent promise of God and locates it in a body of a life that dies. And one of the million reasons I find this significant and beautiful for the moment that we're living in right now is uh, first of all because of an experience that I've had with this part in the story. And if you've been around a bit, you've, you've heard me share the story at length. But it's that at a moment in time where God felt very, very distant, that if, if there was a God at all, that God was at least fickle and very unfaithful to me when I was suffering and in a really dark place. 
Uh, in that moment, I latched onto a prayer from the scriptures that accuses God of all the very things that I was suffering. God, you're far away. You've forgotten us. You're fickle. You abandon us. You were there for other people, but you're not there for us. What are we supposed to do with your character now? And I latched onto that prayer. And then after like, fixating on it for a season, I realized that uh, it's Psalm 22, which shows up someplace else in the scriptures. It shows up on the lips of Jesus on the cross. He cries out the first words of that very same prayer and says, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Which means that like anytime I find anybody suffering or living through darkness, it's from a deeply convicted personal place that I'll look at you and say, I know this isn't easy. I know we may not want it to be this way. I don't know why things are this way, but I'm convinced that you are not alone. In fact, I think you might even be in a good place because any moment when you are suffering or there is darkness or God feels very far away is a moment that this story tells me God is, is imminently present in. And so uh, I think this is like really important big stuff for us to root ourselves in as a church. I don't want to lose sight of how true it is and how important it is for the world that our church is living in in the year 2018. Um, it's also always been the confession of the church that in some way Christ's death was our own death which is good news because it means that what happens next might also be for us where we read this. On the third day he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now first, um, it's been the conviction of the church that if Christ's death is our death, then his resurrection could be our resurrection and that's really good news. Then we have this judging thing that's a little uncomfortable here, <laughs> I know. Um, I'm just doing a bit of a survey here. So again, we could spend a long time working out the, the implications of that. But I just want to observe for a moment uh, what C.S. Lewis says in his own little book on the Psalms. As C.S. Lewis meditates on these ancient Jewish prayers and notes how many of them speak of judgment not as something to be afraid of or to shy away from, they beg for judgment. They cry out. They say, God, would you please judge? Because they, they assume that God's a good judge and that when God judges, things that are wrong will be made right, things that are broken that will be healed, things that are not the way they ought to be will be called out and confronted so that we can get on with creating the kind of world that God actually wants us to make. So even when the scriptures or the creed speaks of judgment, it may not be the bad news that you think it is. Now, it might be sobering news. It might be a confronting word for us, but I don't think it's the bad news that it might feel like when we read about that in the creed. And then the creed goes on and says this. And here the creed sort of gathers up a lot from the Christian story in just a few words. But we read, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic here uh, in its original meaning simply means universal. The universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And when we read about the Holy Spirit, it is, among other things, a reminder that God has chosen to actually be present in us and with us and that he is with us in the project of what we are becoming. And when we read about the Holy Catholic Church, it's a reminder that we are not on our own in this project. And when we read about the communion of saints, it's the good news that we are part of something way, way bigger than ourselves. And when we read about the forgiveness of sins, it's the promise that we don't have to prove ourselves or fix ourselves because God is freely giving his grace to us. And when we read about the resurrection of the body, it's a promise that God has not given up on this good and beautiful world of flesh and blood that he has created and he loves. And when we read about the life everlasting, it's a reminder reminder that our lives are being invited into an eternal story with an eternal trajectory. 
So I call that out because like for a church to be rooted in this faith, I think is actually um, radical and powerful and beautiful. And I don't just believe these things, I find them insanely compelling and life-giving and important uh, for what we're doing as a church and for the life that I find myself living in the year 2018. Uh, there's a writer named G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who was writing in the early 1900s, and one of his books is called Orthodoxy. And it's uh, both his uh, defense and explanation of something like this story that I have just narrated through the creed. And in the book Orthodoxy, he says this, people have fallen into a foolish habit of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy, humdrum, and safe. But there never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. And uh, in a world that I, in some ways feels like it's getting more and more reductive, we have less and less imagination and less and less faith. I think that the story that the creed is narrating that the scriptures are drawing us into that is centered in Jesus is um, more compelling and more beautiful than I've ever known before as I live this out with this community right now. And I wanted to call that out for this, uh, for this moment that we're living in here. Um, if a church is a community discovering that story, finding themselves within that story, growing into the patterns of thought and practice that accord with that story, then I think a church is a brazenly beautiful, unexpected, uncommon, revolutionary thing. And we are called to be a church. And so every time you see that logo, whether you're drinking your coffee or going to the website or at your local tattoo parlor, <laughs> you can remind yourself uh, we are rooted in this uh, profoundly powerful, truthful, ancient faith that we inherit and that we are invited into right now. But that's not the only triangle hiding in the logo. There's another one there. Uh, anybody know what this is? Anybody? This uh, is a Greek delta. It's a, it's a letter in Greek. Uh, you might know it from the front door of your college fraternity, depending on what it was called. Uh, Greek delta, it also is a symbol that's used in math equations, engineering, finance, anywhere you see numbers and letters in ways that they don't belong, in my opinion, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm kind of an arts and letters guy myself. Um, delta, when used in those contexts, connotes change, specifically the change in a variable. So you'll speak to finance guys and they'll talk about an investment opportunity and they'll speak about the delta in the factor that they're looking at. What's changing here? What's the quantity of change that we're dealing with. And this is also uh, part of our reflection as a church. Um, if you feel like we are living in a period of unprecedented change, of quicker than normal change, of greater quantity than normal change, I think you're right. Now, I haven't lived in any other time in the history of the world, so I could be wrong about that, but I'm a student of history, and I'm a student of scholars of history, and I think it's fair to say there are things going on in the world today that add up to greater than normal change. That, um, that there, are, there are long periods in human history where change is incremental and evolutionary. And then there are short bursts of change in human history where the change is fast and it's revolutionary. There are moments when the change feels mostly like we're changing the window dressings on the ideologies or philosophies or experiences of humanity in the world. And there are other periods of change where it feels like the earth is shaking underneath you. The tectonic plates are moving like an earthquake. And if you feel like we're living in one of those periods, I think you're actually right. 
Uh, one writer named Phyllis Tickle, who's a student of the history of religion, she observes that roughly every 500 years, the church in relationship to the world goes through a, a period of dramatic shifting change. The easiest one to recall for most of us who know just a little bit of history is if you go back 500 years, you land in a period of time in the church that we call the Reformation. This was a period of dramatic, tectonic, revolutionary change. It's like everything was up for reevaluation to be reconsidered in the church and in the world at that time. Phyllis Tickle says that anytime you find one of these periods of dramatic change, at least a couple of things are going on. One, the question is always, where is the authority? And usually these periods of change occur when that question is up for rediscovery for a new answer. So 500 years ago in the church, there was a branch of the church that is saying to the authority structures of the church, we don't think you're the authority, we think the Bible's the authority. Now, looking back today, if you come from like a Protestant background like mine, that might be like a yawner, like, eh, whatever. But like, make no mistake, I mean, that was changing everything in the worldview and experience for these Christians at the time. So she says, where is the authority is one of the questions. And she says, the other thing that you will always find in these periods of radical change is the advent of fundamentally new technology. 500 years ago, there was a fundamentally new technology that came alongside the Reformation and empowered it. And that technology was the printing press. So one of the big claims of the Reformation is that this book, that these scriptures are for everyone, that you don't need some authority someplace else to mediate this text or its impact to you. But the only way that works is if people can get their hands on this, right? And so the printing press comes alongside these big questions of authority and theology, and it sort of fuels all of that and creates the conditions for radical change. I don't know if you've noticed, we're living in a period with some fundamentally new technologies. Have you discovered that at all? For example, have you heard of the internet? I know for most of us, it's hard to imagine a time before the internet, at least, like, for me, it was, it was like the 1500 baud modem with Prodigy in my parents' bedroom growing up, right? But, like, it's most of my imagination and most of my history has been formed in a world where we have the internet. The internet is uh, a tool unlike anything the human race has seen before. For the first time ever, we can instantly exchange fake news. We can instantly exchange cryptocurrencies. We can instantly exchange narratives and stories and theologies and philosophies and experiences. 50 years ago, you would grow up, and if you were maybe part of a church community, it's possible that your entire life, the only theological perspective you would ever hear is the one that came from a pulpit in a room like this, right? Now a 12-year-old can go online and watch a lecture from a Sufi mystic or a New Ager or an atheist or a Hindu or whatever. Like it's this colliding, exchanging world that the internet is creating. For the first time ever, in a lot of ways, majority culture is actually being confronted with the lived experience of minority cultures. And this is because of the internet and video and technology, right? So a year ago, this weekend, when Charlottesville was happening, people like me who are a bit naive and a bit ignorant of the experience of minorities in our country, I was being confronted in a way that I hadn't been before with what has been the lived experience of my brothers and sisters of color for a very long time. Uh, religious minorities can bring their stories to the table. Gender minorities can bring their stories to the table. Name the minority that was invisible to the majority 50 years ago, and they probably have a presence in our lives because of the internet, right? This is serious change that we are working through as a world right now. On top of the internet, uh, you have the growth of computing power, which is leading us toward an artificial intelligence future. And I'm not a fear monger when it comes to technology, uh, but Kevin Kelly, the technology futurist who founded Wired Magazine and writes books like The Inevitable, has said on the record that he believes looking forward 
that the advent of artificial intelligence is going to be the most philosophically, spiritually, and theologically disruptive thing to ever happen to the human race. And he says specifically, I don't think Christians are ready to grapple with this because we've got to start asking, what are we going to do when image bearers, that's you and me, right? What are we going to do when image bearers make things in our image? And we have to figure out what category do they fit into. That's big change, right? I'm not here to tell you what to do with that today. I'm just here to mess with you a little bit, okay? <laughs> but what I'm saying is we're living in a period of absolutely staggering change. Uh, so when I, when I wrestle with this, the, the roots of our faith and the world that we are living in right now, sometimes it helps me to put these two symbols side by side. On the left there, the triquetra, this symbol of, of the truth of our faith that we inherit uh, through the fathers and mothers of the church and the scriptures that points us to Jesus. And this changing world with radical winds that are blowing in many different directions. I look at that, and this becomes for me a symbol of the question the church has to wrestle with, which is, like, what are you going to do with those two things side by side, with those two lived experiences of the church in the year 2018? Rooted faith, changing world. What are you going to do? Well, I would argue that there's at least a few different ways that a church can navigate this. One way that a church could navigate this is to say this thing on the left, this rooted faith stuff, that's our business. And the stuff on the right, the changing world, the new questions, the headlines, that's a distraction from our business. Let's not get into that. It's a bit controversial or it's just, it's just not our core business. So we just turn the volume down a little bit on that. If you've ever walked into a church and gotten through the whole service and then thought to yourself, is anybody on that stage living in the world during the week? Because all week long, we've been out there and we've been hearing things and seeing things and wrestling with things and confused about things and we've had headlines and videos and news stories and I went to church and they just didn't mention it. You ever been there? Like this is, this, this is a way that a church can try to navigate it, to say that the, the theology stuff, the Christian story stuff, that that's our business and everything else is just a distraction so let's turn the volume down a little bit, right? Another posture, which is sort of an intensification of that mode, is not just to turn the volume down a little bit on it, but to go further and say all that changing world stuff, the news, the headlines, the questions, the technologies, the new perspectives, the minority views, all of that stuff, it's not just a distraction from our faith, it's a threat. So this is when you go to church, and it's not that the pastor never talks about that stuff, Rather, the pastor tells you, don't you dare ask questions about that stuff and don't read these books about that stuff and filter all of your thinking through me on that stuff because I'm afraid that if you start asking those questions or bringing those ideas into this community, it'll ruin everything, it'll mess everything up. That's another way that you could try to navigate this, right? Third option, I would argue, sort of swings the other way, and that's to look upon our faith, upon our creed, upon the truths that we are rooted in as unfashionable, as irrelevant, as outdated, as antiquated, and then to just sort of throw them overboard and capitulate, to abdicate, to just sort of whatever wind is blowing today, just to go wherever that wind takes us. Whatever the best thinking is out there today, let's just assume that's the best thinking because apparently whatever is most current or most recent is the best. That would be another model, another way of working through all of this, right? And you can find uh, faith communities like this that I would argue have maybe kind of made that move, okay? Um, those are three different ways of, of navigating this tension, but I want to argue that there's a fourth way. And to get there, I want to open the scriptures and look at a moment from the early church in the book of Acts. So we are just getting started. You guys doing okay? 
No, don't worry. We don't have much farther to go. Uh, but I, I want to I pull this from the scriptures. This is really important to me. When we began the church, we spent a year in the book of Acts because we want to be deeply rooted and we want our imagination about what this community will be to be thoroughly formed by the scriptures. So let me take you to one of those moments in the book of Acts. This is chapter 15. This is a moment in the very beginnings of the church. Now, before we read it, a little bit of background for you. Uh, the church, the followers of Jesus begin as a Jewish movement Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher who brings his friends along with him on this journey, but they slowly discover that what's happening there is much, much bigger, more cosmic, more powerful than a rabbi walking around inviting his Jewish friends to follow him. Something bigger is going on there, right? And so it's not long after the, the time of Jesus uh, that the, the Jewish movement, which was Christianity, starts to sort of have its Jewish character disrupted. By Jewish, I mean it was Jewish people, which means they have a, a tribal belonging and identity. They're part of the Jewish tribe. And the way that you know that they're part of the Jewish tribe is not just their lineage, but it's their bodies and behaviors because Jewish men are marked with circumcision, which is a way of being part of the tribe. And uh, the entire sort of ethical life of the Jew, the food they eat, the food they don't eat, all of this stuff is part of being Jewish in the first century. And at first, the Christian movement, the church, is a Jewish movement. And then some stuff starts happening. All this mess starts getting created. A man named Cornelius, who's not a Jew, uh, gets called into the faith, has an encounter with Jesus. And then a man named Peter, who's part of the early church, who is a Jew, has a dream in which God tells Peter to eat all the unclean food. And this is to prepare Peter to go to Cornelius' house where he'll, share the, where, he'll, where he'll share the good news of Jesus. So Peter, a good Jewish man, who would never in his life, never in his right mind, go have a meal with a Gentile in a Gentile house because that meal causes him to cross every boundary that a Jew doesn't cross, is called to do so. So he goes and he has that meal and there's kind of a back and forth in Peter's life where he steps bravely toward this and then backs away from it. And before you know it, you have uh, Gentiles all over the place, non-Jewish people receiving the spirit of God and the church is saying, we should probably pay attention to this but we don't know what to do with it because it doesn't fit our categories. Uh, one scholar, again, E.P. Sanders, uh, first, uh, he's a scholar of first century Judaism and Paul, he says basically the Jews had hoped that the Gentiles would come and be a part of the people of God. The problem is nobody had ever figured out what that was supposed to look like. Nobody had ever worked out the details of that, that collision of cultures and worlds. So the church finds itself having to interpret that moment. Uh, this is Acts chapter 15. Let's read. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So the believers here are Gentile Christians, followers of Jesus who have not been circumcised, who haven't become Jewish on their way to following Jesus, right? And they're saying, you've, you've got to come all the way over into our old categories. You've got to subscribe to our pre-existing understanding of everything if you want to be part of the new thing. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, that's not the way this is actually going to go Guys, this is, um, this is a massive disruption because in the year 2018, we don't work with tribes in quite the same way. We don't think of ethics or circumcision in quite the same way. It can be hard for us to get our brains around this, but this is, they're experiencing like pathological cognitive dissonance. 
Meaning there are like two things in their brain and they don't know how they're supposed to fit together. And when you have serious cognitive dissonance, two things in your brain or your experience that you can't fit together, it'll mess with you. It'll make you uncomfortable. It'll screw with you in the worst kind of way. And that seems to be happening in the early church. And Paul and Barnabas stand up and they say, you're not taking the right approach. A little further here. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So they're going to corporate, right? Let's, let's take this up the chain. Let's go back to headquarters and see what they say. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James, James represents corporate here, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And now he reaches back into their tradition from the prophet Amos, and he reads, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. James keeps speaking. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Did you hear what happened there? Here's my argument, and after the service you can totally tell me I'm wrong, okay? Here's my argument. This is, this is the moment where the church has this tension between these two experiences, right? They have the roots of their faith. For their entire lives as Jewish believers in God, they've known what it looks like to be a part of the people of God. They've known how to spot the activity of God. They've known what the Spirit of God should do in the world. And then the Spirit of God does a bunch of stuff they weren't expecting, and the people that they weren't allowing in are all of a sudden asking if they can come in, and they've got to figure out what are they going to do. And I want to argue this isn't the church at her worst. This is the church at her best, that they actually say, let's wrestle with it together. Let's, let's step into the tension between these two things. So I'm arguing the church doesn't live on the left and ignore the right. The church doesn't live on the left and fight the right. The church doesn't ignore the left and capitulate to the right. That the church, like what we are, what it means to be the church is to live with faith in the tension of that space in the middle as an interpretive community that never loses uh, the orthodox roots of our faith but always asks questions, always looks around and sees what is God doing right now and how do we keep up with it? And I'll tell you, like, as far as I can tell, 
living in the roots with no regard for the world doesn't actually take much faith. And capitulating to every wind that is blowing in the world without holding on to our roots doesn't actually take much faith. The one place I know on this little diagram that takes faith is that black hole in the center where we don't always know the answers. We're not always sure where our discernment will lead us, but we are working it out together. I say this because uh, every once in a while somebody will talk to me after a gathering and they'll say, boy, you kind of stepped into some controversial stuff there. Did you mean to do that? Yep. Yep. Not because we're trying to be controversial. That's not the case at all. That's stupid. But because that's actually our vision as a church, we're going to wrestle with some of these questions together because I think that's where faith lives and that's where the church comes alive. That's where the adventure is. I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. We have to actually go there and dig into some hard things, some challenging things, and we won't always know what all of the answers are, but we're going to work it out together. Uh, It's really easy to collect a bunch of people who agree with each other and call that a church. I'm not sure that's a church. A church is somehow more mysterious and more centered and more alive and more diverse than that. And what I want South Bend City Church to be, because I think it's what we are supposed to be, is a community that explores that tension and dances with that together. Um, If the triquetra and the delta aren't helpful symbols for you, can I give you one more that might be a little easier for us to get our hands on? Another symbol that I think reflects the same sort of big ideas. It's this. A sailboat. Now, I'm not much of a sailor, a bit of a land lover myself. Uh, I don't know how to rig a knot. Um, But I do understand uh, this simple thing about a sailboat. A sailboat is meant to go somewhere when the wind blows. In the scripture, by the way, uh, the word for spirit is also the word for wind. A sailboat is supposed to go someplace when the wind blows. Um, But a sailboat has two features that help it actually navigate the waters. The first feature is the ballast. Ballast is weight in the bottom of the boat. It, it, it draws it toward the center of gravity in the center of the earth. And without ballast, a sailboat will capsize. And I don't care how strong the wind is blowing, it won't get anywhere, and the people on that boat will die. However, you can have the perfect ballast, perfectly weighted, perfectly centered in that boat. You can be tethered to the center of gravity on planet Earth as perfectly as possible. And if your sails aren't up, and you don't know how to catch the wind, you won't get anywhere and you might as well not be on the boat. People are fond of boat metaphors for the church. This is the best way I know to use a boat metaphor for the church. We are called to keep our eye on the ballast and the wind and to go somewhere. And sometimes those waters will be rough and sometimes the wind won't blow the way we thought it would. (laughs) Sometimes we might lose our grip for a little bit. Um, But I think we're called to be out there on the water together figuring things out. So, for the next few weeks, as a community, we're going to try some of this. And it won't be the first time that we've stepped into challenging questions. Next week, uh, we're going to talk about science and faith. I'm really excited about this. Um, This is one of those places where it might feel like there's a tension between the roots of our theology, our creed, our scriptures, and the world that we're living in right now. Um, Some of those tensions are very real, but I want to argue there's actually a lot of fruit and power in those tensions and that faith is a great gift to science and that science is a great gift to faith, so we'll explore that next week. Then the following week, uh, we're going to talk about sexuality. Because the other day, I was thinking to myself, this church thing's going really well, so let's see if we can make it harder. (laughs) Uh, When I say we're going to talk about sexuality, um, I know that there already might be some elevated heart rates in the room. 
depending on your perspective or experience around that word and church. Um, let me say this today. If you've been here for a little bit, you know that we aspire to a very high level of care and character in every conversation we have. And we don't always nail that, but we aspire to a very high level of care and character and, uh, and integrity in the things that we do. And uh, I'm just telling you, uh, it is my mission in life for you to walk out of that gathering feeling like, man, we had that conversation really well as a community, that it was had with great care and character, with remembering that the issues aren't just issues, but they're people, um, that our theology really matters. So that's two weeks from now. And we're also going to come together at Jesus' table for communion that week, which I think is actually a really important pairing, because as we move into issues that have been divisive in the church, I think it's important for us to remember that it's our experience of Christ that draws us toward one another, even if we violently disagree. <laughs> that's exactly what I see in the book of Acts. So that'll be uh, two weeks from now, and I would really encourage you uh, to be here for that week. And then the week after that, I'm very excited. A very good friend of mine named Jonathan Merritt is a writer, a cultural commentator, theological speaker, and uh, he's written a book recently that fits right in the vein of this experience. So Jonathan uh, lives in New York City, uh, but he grew up uh, the son of a pastor in the Bible Belt, Southern Baptist, through and through. Uh, and he moved from the South to New York City a few years ago and discovered that the, the language of faith that he used to describe God and his experience of God uh, it, it wasn't really working in the context that is Brooklyn. And so it sent him on a long journey to think about how it is that we talk about faith in the modern world. And he's written a book about it that's actually coming out in a couple of days. The book is called Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And I highly recommend the book. And then Jonathan will be here Labor Day weekend, Sunday and Tuesday. And he and I are going to have a conversation uh, about that book. I think you'll really, really enjoy that. So that's where we're going. Before I wrap this up, I just want to uh, observe one more little note in the text. Um, there's this thing when the apostles quote the prophet. Now remember, this moment feels unprecedented to them, like they've never been there before. The, the Jewish followers of Jesus had never had to grapple with what are we going to do with the Gentiles. This is sort of all new and confusing and probably a bit scary for them, right? But watch what happens when they, when they reflect on it together. Uh, this is James who is speaking, and he's quoting from Amos, and he says, the Lord does these things, listen, things known from long ago. The Lord does these things, things known from long ago. So in the moment when they are asking all new questions, it turns out that the new questions help them discover something that was present in their faith from the very beginning. I'm saying it's not just that the roots of our faith equip us for the modern world. It's also that the questions we are asking today might drive us back to our faith to rediscover what is most enduring and true and important in this faith that we have inherited from the beginning of what we call the church, that they actually both help each other. Chesterton, that guy who writes that book called Orthodoxy, he opens that book with a sailing metaphor where he describes a clumsy adventurer who sets sail from the coast of England to go and discover a new land across the ocean but by some accident of the compass, he ends up arriving right back at his homeland, not realizing it at first. 
And then he says, you read the story of this poor, sad adventurer, and you might have some pity on him for such a sad experience. And he says, you have dramatically misunderstood what he experienced in that moment. He said, this delightful adventurer in one moment had both all of the adventure of sailing to new land and all of the comfort of coming home. He says, that's been my journey with orthodoxy. And I'm proposing that's actually what's waiting for us in all of these new questions that churches are afraid of, but we're going to wrestle with. That they're, they're actually inviting us back to what is truest and most beautiful and enduring. They, they create opportunities for us to shed the baggage that has accumulated over the last five or 10 or 50 or 100 or 500 years as the faith constantly wants to be renewed. And where you find the faith being renewed, you find the spirit blowing in a community like this. So I'm actually really excited about all this. And we'll wrestle with some difficult things, uh, but I believe this is us being a church the way a church is supposed to be a church. You guys okay? Okay, I'm gonna have Dan uh, and crew come back up. And uh, it feels really fitting that we would return um, to what feels to me like a very rooted song. And um, it's important to say this too, that the church finds its roots and its experience of the Spirit, not just in sermons, but in many other things that we experience together, including the songs that we sing together. And so if you're able, would you stand to your feet? And I would just, uh, alongside Dan, invite our church uh, to sing an old hymn uh, that reminds us of what is vibrant and living uh, about the Jesus story that we gather around every week. sing together holy holy holy
Every time I mention our mantra, sushi, not fish stew, without fail, at least somebody texts me after church with a picture from a sushi restaurant. So if I don't get one picture from a tattoo parlor today, you guys have <laughs> failed me at some level. Uh, I'm certain that Jesus welcomes every kind of person to follow him and that you don't have to show up brave or humble or thoughtful, but that you don't get to follow Jesus for very long without having to become brave and humble and thoughtful. And I'm convinced that Jesus is calling his church to be brave and humble and thoughtful. And I frankly don't know a room full of people more brave and thoughtful and humble uh, than this one. And so I'm really uh, grateful to be on this journey with you. And we'll see where we go. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. I love you guys. See you next week.